Second Kings chapter 17, if you want to join me there in your Bibles as we continue our study through Second Kings together, as we come to chapter 17, we really come now to this section which records for us historically the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. Again, at this time, we've been looking at the divided nation where there's really two kingdoms that Israel's divided into, the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin in the south. Uh, the other 10 tribes referred to as the northern kingdom having their own independent king. Ultimately, both the northern and the southern kingdom will fall uh, to the empire of other nations because of their sin and rebellion against the Lord. The northern kingdom falls first. We see to Assyria, which we'll see happen in our text tonight, and then ultimately, not too long afterwards, the southern kingdom will be taken into captivity into uh, the really domination of the people of Babylon. Now, uh, very interesting to remember, and let me just recall your memory. The Bible tells us back in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28 that God had told the people of Israel when they came into his land, and that's the priority to remember that the land was God's. And when God delivered them out of Egypt and brought them into the land of Israel and gave it to them, they were, they were tenants. The land belongs to God. It's God's land. God chose to give it to the Jewish people. That still exists to this day, though politicians can't seem to figure that out and wonder why there's so much tension in the Middle East. But God is the one who owns the land and God allowed the, the people of Israel to be his tenants there. But God also said to them that if they would obey him and serve him, that God would bless him and they would experience abundance in their crops and they'd have protection and stability and, and they'd experience God's blessing. But by the same token, if they turned away from God, if they disregarded God's word and God's will and they rebelled and served other gods and entered into idolatry and lived in immoral ways that displeased God, that they would literally bring curses upon themselves. Uh, not necessarily that God would curse them as much as the cumulative effect of their sin and wrongdoing would ultimately bring their own demise and they would experience the poor consequences of that. In fact, let me just remind you of, again, Deuteronomy 28 referring to that. Let me just read you a few verses from there before we jump into 2 Kings 17. The Lord speaking said, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, in need of everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which does not respect the elderly, nor show favor to the young." And they shall eat the increase of your livestock, the produce of your land, until you are destroyed. They shall leave you nor, neither grain nor new wine or oil or the increase of your cattle until they have destroyed you. They shall besiege you at all your gates until your high and fortified walls in which you trust come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you at your gates and besiege you throughout all your land in which the Lord your God has given you. And again, again, God just goes on there to reiterate that one of the predicted consequences God said to his people that if they turned away from him and continue to serve other gods and other things instead of serving the Lord, is that in essence, God would just pull back his hand of protection. 
why they were living the way God wanted them to live. God was merciful, God was involved, and he protected and preserved the nation. But really, when they turned away from God, God really just ultimately gave them over to their own way and basically, in essence, conveyed to them, if you don't want my involvement in your nation, if you don't want my involvement in your lives, then I'll allow you to see what it's like when I'm not involved. When I don't bless your land, when I don't bless your produce, when I don't bless your military endeavors, and when I pull back my protection over you, I'll allow you then to experience being conquered by your enemies. And that's ultimately what we see beginning to happen. It's been happening. We've been watching it in our recent chapters. The northern kingdom is on a serious downward spiral. We saw last time constant instability where one king would literally cause a conspiracy and would assassinate another king. Some kings would reign for six months. Sometimes they'd only reign for a month. And it was just this intrigue and all of these palace coups back and forth. And one person was rising up and assassinating the king so that then they could reign. And so there was all this instability and ungodly behavior. And the cumulative effect of that now leads ultimately to the Assyrians, who are the rising empire at this time, taking little by little more control. They've already become a vassal nation to the Assyrians. And we saw last time together in chapter uh, 15 there, where really the first deportation took place in 722, or excuse me, 733 BC, the first time a group of people were taken away during the time of Pekah when he was the king of Israel. Now, as we come to chapter 17, we now see the last king, of the northern kingdom, a man named Hoshea. Hoshea. It says in the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, so as Ahaz was reigning in the southern kingdom, which will last a little longer than the northern kingdom, it was in the twelfth year of the reign of Ahaz in Judah that Hoshea, the son of Elah, became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned nine years. And he will now be the last king in the northern kingdom, and we saw in chapter 15 towards the end that the way that Hoshea came to the throne was he as well conspired against Pekahiah, assassinated him, took over his throne, usurping his power. And verse 2 tells us as well that Hoshea, like many of the kings of Israel, did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel who were before him. And verse 3 says that Shalmaneser king of Assyria came up against him and Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute money. So as Shalmaneser begins to encroach upon the northern kingdom of Israel at this time, unfortunately, Hosea, rather than turning to the Lord, rather than praying, instead, he pays tribute to the enemy, trying to pay off the enemy, making compromises and looking for ways in his flesh to try and get relief rather than resolve the problem of the condition of the nation. And rather than cry out to the Lord and turn to the Lord, he actually tries to forestall the inevitable that's going to happen by really beginning to compromise. It says that he becomes a vassal of Shalmaneser, uh, king of Assyria, paying him tribute money. And again, look, whenever in our lives... Things are starting to unravel, and a lot of times things start to maybe unravel because of our own poor choices, or maybe we start to pursue a pattern of disobedience against the Lord, and sin never works. You know, the Bible tells us that what we sow, we reap, uh, and we can't think that we can sow to the flesh 
and then pray for crop failure and think that somehow we can do what's wrong and rebel against God, whether it's personally in our own lives or in the way we conduct our family affairs or the way that we operate as a church or even as a nation. We can't think that we can disregard God's word and God's ways and that we're not going to see things start to unravel with the inevitable consequences. But when that starts to happen and things start to unravel, the wise thing to do in that situation is to humble ourselves and cry out to the Lord and, and to turn to the Lord in prayer and not make compromises and concessions to try and manipulate the matters at hand to try and somehow forestall experiencing the consequences for our own wrongdoing. And really, that's the mistake that we see Hosea making here, this last king of Israel. He's just trying to get relief and get the king of Assyria to hold off from completely conquering them. So he starts making compromises and paying him. Well, it never works to make compromises with the enemy. It ultimately just leads to bigger problems. So verse 4 says, The king of Assyria then uncovered, notice, a conspiracy by Hosea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and brought no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. So in the midst of these affairs, apparently, again, as Hosea is trying to work the system, again, instead of turning to God, it tells us that he now goes in a conspiracy effort and he makes an alliance. He tries to hire out the Egyptians. He turns to the king there to try and come to his aid and assistance. And as a result of that, he's not paying the proper amount of tribute money to the king of Assyria. And again, this comes to light. It becomes known, it says, it was brought to the attention of the king of Assyria. And as the result of that, he then being angered, took further control over him, shut him up and actually bound him in prison. And little by little, as he compromised, as he continued to make concessions rather than dealing with the wrongdoing, instead trying to just work his way around it, it just led to further and further loss of his liberty to where ultimately we see the king now being shut up and bound in prison. Uh, and look, Egypt in the Bible is always a picture and a type of the world. It's a picture and type of the world in the sense that when the people of Israel were in Egypt, remember, they were in oppression and bondage and slavery. They were in misery and they were crying out to the Lord because they were miserable in their servitude and their slavery to the taskmasters over them. And that's always a picture in the same way that Pharaoh was this cruel taskmaster ruling over their lives in bondage. Well, there's a spiritual enemy, a, a ruler of this age, the God of, uh, of the, the prince of the power of the air. The Bible refers to him, the God of this age, Satan. And just like Pharaoh, he's a cruel taskmaster and he wants to do the same thing. He wants to take control of people's lives and rob them from God's plan and God's purpose and really just enslave people and cause them to be bound up and imprisoned in their own lifestyles and habits and practices where they literally become imprisoned as they gradually forsake more and more freedom in their lives. So now we find the king, he's now been incarcerated because he's caught in the midst of this conspiracy and verse 5 says, Now the king of Assyria went throughout all the land at this point, went up to Samaria, that's the capital city, and he besieged it for three years. So he lays siege against the capital city of Samaria for a three-year process. Now, again, understand, we've talked about this before. When you would want to 
ultimately conquer a nation, a territory, typically this was commonplace. You'd go to a strategic city, whether the capital city or whatever it may be, and you would lay siege against it. And the basic idea of a siege or besieging a city was you would, from outside the city, surround the city. Sometimes you'd put siege ramps up against it, and you basically would kind of imprison the people inside of the city so that there was no one who could come in and out there was no way they could have access to food or to fresh drinking water or things that they needed and you would just gradually wear the people down inside typically causing them to experience starvation and drought into the place where they ultimately began to die off or became so weak ultimately that then after you weaken them enough, you could just easily go in and conquer them. So that's why it says here, for three years, they laid siege against the city of Samaria, causing starvation and drought and the people needing food and water until ultimately it says, verse six, that it was then in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria, took Samaria and he then carried away to Assyria and placed them, notice, in Hala and by Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. So here we now have the second and what we might call final deportation happened in two stages. The first one in 733 BC, we saw last time. And here now is the second and final deportation 11 years later. It's exactly how long it roughly took for the nation to completely fall. It was a process. But now in 722 BC, we see the king of Assyria comes in, says he takes over Samaria and carries Israel, that's the northern kingdom and the people there, away to Assyria as captives. And notice, he, he repopulates them in other territories as he placed the people of Israel in Hala by Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. And this was very typical of how the Assyrians would work when they would conquer nations. They would typically take the healthy, the strong, the vibrant in the land, and they would take them out of the land they conquered, leaving behind in the land the weak, those who were impoverished, those who were really kind of more unstable. Maybe they were in poverty or just weak. They would leave them in the land because they figured they can't regroup. But the bulk of the people, they would take the healthy, the strong, those with vibrancy and potential, and they would then repopulate them in multiple different territories. And then what they would do is take people from other lands they had conquered, and then they would then populate them into the territory, for example, of Israel, which they've just conquered, in such a way that different nationalities of people would be all intermixed in such a way that the nations they conquered would lose their identities, and they would not have the potential or possibility to sort of regain their national identity, regather, and somehow rebel. And it was really just their way of keeping the people they conquered weakened and incapacitated so that they could not rebel and regain their territory and regain their national identity. So they're now taken away. They're, they're dispersed in different territories, the city of the Medes, and near the river it goes on. And now verse 7 and onward begins to tell us some of the reasons for the fall of the nation. And I think it's important to take note of this because uh, this was how a nation that God was involved in fell. This is how a nation that God once blessed and had his hand upon ultimately deteriorated and was conquered by another foreign nation. 
A nation that was once strong and vibrant becomes weak and ultimately is conquered and driven out of their own land. And God tells us the reasons why specifically. So it's good for us to look at, to learn from, because uh, nothing new under the sun. The same kind of things still happen in these days. And really the same principles that we see here that happen nationally are things that we also should pay attention into our own lives for personally. Uh, that we don't want to allow our life that was once being ruled by God and blessed by God to ultimately be weakened and deteriorate and to allow our enemy, the enemy of our soul, to come and take over our lives and take us captive to do his will and begin to draw us away and out of the good and blessed life that God wants for us as his followers and children. So verse 7, we begin to get some of the reasons for the fall of the nation. It says, verse 7, for so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they feared other gods and had walked in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel, which they had made. So take notice. First and foremost, they completely disregarded the fact of the incredible work that God had done in their lives initially. They were slaves in Egypt, and here it refers in verse 7 how at one time they were in bondage and slaves in Egypt. They cried out to God, and what did God do? God sent them a deliverer. God sent them a savior. It was Moses. In the same way, Moses, one greater than Moses, was a great picture of Jesus, the savior God sends to us to get us out of our bondage and slavery to sin and the living in the world where we once were. But God sent them a deliverer. It says he brought them out of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, the taskmaster uh, who, who was once controlling them. God delivered them, but they sort of lost appreciation for the work of God's salvation. They lost appreciation for the fact that God had brought a great deliverance in their life and had set them free. And at one time they were in misery and slave to other things and that God had brought deliverance and they lost a sense of reverence and appreciation for that. And I'll tell you, that is something, uh, whether it's a nation that begins to forget its roots and begins to forget how originally uh, God established, maybe through trials and difficulties in a wonderful way, delivering people from this and establishing them as a new nation in a blessed way, or whether in our own lives, one of the biggest mistakes we can make, and it's one of the first things that begins to contribute towards the downfall of our lives spiritually, is when we lose appreciation for our salvation. And we forget the reality of, hey, I was once a slave, man. I was living in Egypt and I was in a dark, miserable, difficult place and the Lord intervened and he brought me out of that and he brought me into a relationship with him and, and how easily we can, if we're not careful, begin to lose a, a memory of that and lose appreciation for the mighty work of God's deliverance in our lives and verse eight as well as the result of that, they then started to walk, it says, in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. So again, the land God brought them into, remember when he brought them into the land, he told them to drive out the people of the land because they were involved in 
idolatrous practices and all types of uh, activities that were grotesque and immoral in the way that uh, they conducted themselves and really the nation of Israel being brought into the land, two things were happening. One, God was judging and dealing with the cancerous condition of the Canaanites and the Jebusites and all the people of the land that were involved in all of these evil practices that were self-destructive and God used Israel to judge them for their evil and wrongdoing that was corrupting from them from within and as well God was driving out those nations to bring Israel and to reestablish them as a people a new and a different nation and yet Israel turned back around and they walked in the very statutes and they really conducted themselves in the same way as the people of ungodliness who the Lord had asked them to enter in to replace in that land. Verse 9, he says, Also the children of Israel, look at this, secretly did against the Lord their God things that were not right. And they built themselves high places in all their cities. Again, the uh, ancient concept in the mind of people in that day was the higher you were, the closer you were to a deity. And this was kind of the uh, mindset behind the uh, building of high places for worship. From watchtower to fortified city, they set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images, a reference to the Asherah poles, basically just pornographic images, pornographic statues, very uh, sexually promiscuous uh, statues that they would look upon and engage in sexual rites of fertility with as a part of their idolatrous worship on every high hill and every green tree. And there they burned incense, verse 11, on all the high places like the nations whom the Lord had carried away before them. And they did wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. So as they enter into these wrong practices, verse 9 interestingly tells us that this says the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord things that were not right. Very interesting. Secretly. They did things against the Lord that were not right. Now understand, when the Bible says they secretly did things against the Lord that were not right, it's not as if somehow it was a secret to the Lord. <laughs> That's the mistake that people make. People do wrong things in secret, things that are not right in secret, and they think somehow that uh, God's not aware, and if they do it in secret and their friends don't know about it or their spouse doesn't know about it or their parents don't know about it or uh, you know other people don't know about it, that somehow if they do things that are not right secretly, that they're going to get away with it or that somehow uh, you know it's, it's something they're, they're keeping hitting. When the Bible tells us from God's perspective, everything lays naked and bare before the eyes of him to whom we all must give account. There's nothing secret from the Lord. The Lord's aware of everything. The Lord sees everything. It's the foolishness and the deception of our own mind that makes us think that because we can hide things from each other as people, and we unfortunately do that, we, do, we don't usually do wrong things in open. Typically, we want to do wrong things in secret. So whatever immoral practice it may be, whatever sinful thing, we, we, we want to do things in the dark because we don't want others to know because we'd be ashamed if they did know. And, you know, perhaps even tonight, if you're doing certain things secretly, why? The Bible says that we walk in the light as the Lord's people. If you have to do something secretly, there's a reason why you have to do it secretly. It's probably because you're doing something that's not right before the Lord. You're doing something that's wrong, and that's why you're doing it secretly. But understand, you're not going to get away with it because the Lord's aware of what you're doing. 
And there's nothing secret before the Lord, whether it's something that a nation is doing and trying to cover up on a national level, or whether it's something a family or an individual is doing, God sees it. And though it may be secret from others, it's exposed fully to the Lord, and God will deal with it accordingly. And ultimately, what's done in secret, the Bible says, always comes to the light anyway. From what I've seen in time, the Lord always usually brings things even out into the open. And then on top of dealing with the Lord, we have to deal with the shame and regret of what we hid from others as well. It always comes to the surface. But again, doing secret things against the Lord that were not right in their practices, looking at perverse things, and they did wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger, verse 11, for they, verse 12, served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this thing. So the Lord had clearly said, don't worship idols. Don't put any other God before me. And when the Lord said, have no other gods before me in regards to idolatry, and that's what idolatry is. Idolatry is the worship of something else other than God. That's what idolatry is. And the Lord had said, you shall have no other gods before me, no other idols. God's inference in that was not... Okay, you can have other gods and idols, but just don't put anybody before me. As long as I can be first, then you can worship. The idea was before me in my presence. Lord, no other gods, no other idols, nothing else that you reverence or worship in my sight before me. And he had said, you shall not do this thing. And they were doing something God told them not to do. That's called sin. When the Lord says, you shall not do this thing, and you disregard what God says don't do, that's not only sin, that's idolatry. Because basically what you or I are doing in that moment is we are saying by giving allegiance to something that is not what God wants for us, we are saying this thing is more important that I do this rather than I give worship and reverence to the Lord in our lives. And it's, it becomes a form of idolatry. So much of what we do in our practices of sin is really an issue of idolatry in our own heart that we're idolizing that practice or habit or thing that we're pursuing that we know God said we're not to do. Verse 13, notice God's always faithful when we begin to do wrong. He says, verse 13, yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah, how? By his prophets, every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. So notice, God, God was always faithful to give a testimony of his word to the people. Even as the people were erring, even as they were rebelling, and it was a process. Keep in mind, we're looking at the fall of the nation of Israel in the north. This is somewhere around about 250 years after the time of the, uh, the divided kingdom and, and the establishment of the nation of Israel in the north. So it wasn't like this was an overnight process. It's not like the Lord just said, that's it. I mean, I gave you two years. We're talking a few centuries. That's called mercy. That's called patience. That God continued to strive with the nation. He continued to strive with the people as they rebelled and became more wicked and darker and, and more evil in their ways. And, and he says, and I sent to you continually the word of the Lord, he says, by my servants, the prophets, those who would speak forth the word of God, speaking to the people, trying to notice, call them back, turn from your evil ways. The Lord mercifully saying, turn back, turn away from that. I don't want to have to 
bring discipline and judgment upon you. I don't want you to suffer. The Lord's saying, please turn from your evil ways. There's an opportunity God gave to turn. And he says, and instead keep my commandments. So that's a picture of repentance. Turning from what is evil, turning away from what's wrong, and turning towards God's commandments and doing what is right instead. And God continued to send this word by his servants, the prophets. God's messengers were there to call people away from sin and to turn them back to God. Verse 14, the very sad testimony. And again, here's why the nation ultimately fell into judgment. Nevertheless, verse 14, they would not hear, but stiffened their necks like the necks of their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. So they had adequate light. They had adequate time. God repeatedly testified to them, sent prophet after prophet, messenger after messenger. God spoke to them again and again. And it doesn't say that they could not hear. You see verse 14? It says they would not hear. It wasn't a lack of understanding. It wasn't that God wasn't really clear. And let no one ever fool you that when God ultimately steps in and has to bring his discipline, his chastisement, or his judgment, no person can ever say, that's not fair. I didn't know. God didn't tell me. God didn't warn me. You're right. He told you many times. He warned you multiple times. He repeatedly said to you, turn Please turn. If you don't turn, and and this is what's going to happen, and the Lord repeatedly sent his word to them, but they would not hear. The idea is they chose to disregard God. They chose to ignore God's voice. And a nation that continues to disregard the word of the Lord and disregard God's voice and say, we know better, we're our legislators know more than those who speak from pulpits the truth of God's word and, and what we legislate as politicians, we know what's right and moral for the nation, so we're going to do this and change that and pervert this and continue to disregard God's word and God's voice. That nation is choosing in their ignoring of God to bring judgment upon themselves. In the same way in our lives, we have a, a, a decision to make. When the Lord's speaking to us, we know he's speaking to us. I know what it's like when he speaks to me. And I hope I'm not really that much different than any other person here in this room. And when I'm doing something I know I shouldn't be doing and my attitude, my heart, the Lord's faithful to send word into my life. And to convict and to try and spare me from a wrong path. But that point, we have a decision. Are we going to listen? And are we going to turn? Or are we going to choose to ignore and disregard God's voice? Be careful. Don't find yourself in that place where you choose not to hear where you wouldn't hear. And you stiffen your neck. Well, that's an image there, isn't it? Stiffen their necks. It's the picture there of like a stubborn animal where somebody with the reins is trying to pull the animal in a certain way and it's doing everything it can to resist and to stiffen its neck like a stubborn horse or a mule. And we can do that. We can stiffen our neck against the Lord when he's trying to pull us in the right direction. We can kind of stiffen up and resist the hand of the Lord trying to help us. Verse 15, and they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and his testimonies, which he had testified against them. And instead they followed their idols and became as a result, idolaters. 
They went after the nations who were all around them concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. Interesting verse 15, they followed idols and then they became idolaters. The language is literally they followed vanity or they followed emptiness and they became empty. They followed idols and they became idolaters because look, whatever you and I follow and serve, that's what we're going to become. You become like what you worship. Do do, do you want to become what's good and right? Well, then worship God. If you worship God, gradually by the spirit of the Lord's work in your life, you'll become more like God. If you worship Jesus, behold, in the mirror, we, we continue to observe the glory of the Lord and we're being transformed, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, by the Spirit of the Lord. That, that's as we behold Jesus and we worship Jesus, we become more Christ-like. We become more like Jesus as we worship him. Well, the same holds true in any other capacity. What you and I follow, pursue, worship, serve, that's what we become like. People who, again, their, their God is money and finances and, and, and you know, greediness and all that. What they, that's what they become. They become a greedy, cold person where uh, you know, money dominates and makes the decisions about everything. And here, they followed idols and they became idolaters. Again, ultimately, it's following emptiness because that's what idols were. They're just empty, vain things. And they became empty. You know, when you follow something that's empty... It doesn't lead to fulfillment. It just leads to greater emptiness. And this is what they were experiencing as they did those things that the Lord told them that they were not to do. So verse 16, they left all the commandments of the Lord. Notice the language, they left. That is, they forsook the commandments of the Lord. They had them, but they left them. Isn't that interesting? Here's a nation and a people that at one time, their lives were built upon the commandments of the Lord. And they knew the commandments of the Lord and they governed themselves according to the commandments of the Lord, but then they left those bearings. They left the boundaries that they once knew that were based upon the word of God and the word of the Lord. They left those things and they started redefining morality. They started redefining what was right and wrong. They left the commandments of the Lord that had made for themselves instead molded images and two calves, the two calves in Bethel we've seen and talked about, a wooden image. And they then began to worship all the host of heaven and serve Baal. So they entered into, again, you know, astrology and horoscopes and looking for signs in the stars and so forth. And they caused, verse 17, another issue of the nation. They began to disregard life and the value of life, something that marked the nation during its downfall. They caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire, child sacrifice to the god Molech. And they practiced as well, notice, witchcraft and soothsaying. So they began to become preoccupied with the occult and pursuing dark things and wizards and dragons and all these things of, you know, witchcraft and and these kind of things that became very prominent among the people. They liked these things of witchcraft and wizards and all these kind of things. It became what interested the people in the nation. Pursuing and you know the dead began to have a fetish with the dead. You know, look at our culture. Look at our culture, and please tell me you cannot see a marked difference of this fascination people have with you know channeling the dead and, and witchcraft and sorcery in our movies and all the and just and the infatuation with those kind of things. Looking into those kind of things, having a growing interest. 
And they sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Verse 18, therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel, justifiably so. And as a result, he removed them from his sight and there was none left but the tribe of Judah alone. So again, a reference to that was the end of the northern nation. He removed them out of his land, leaving at this time only Judah in the south. Verse 19, also Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the statutes of Israel, which they made. So unfortunately, the northern kingdom began to have a bad reflection to the southern kingdom and led ultimately to them seeing that poor example. Verse 20, and the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel, afflicted them and delivered them into the hand of the plunderers until he had cast them from his sight. For he tore Israel from the house of David and they made Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, king. That was what happened back at the time of the divided kingdom, reckoning back to then. And then Jeroboam, that was the first king of the north, remember? The Bible reminds us. Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. Interesting. The very first king, it references back, and it says of Jeroboam, he drove Israel from following the Lord. Wow, a king, a national leader drove the people from following the Lord, used his position, his place of influence to drive a people from following the Lord and to cause the people to commit sin. Boy, that's always a very bad thing when a national leader not only legislates poorly, but instead causes people to turn away from following the Lord, legislates things that lead people in a wrong direction. That's always the beginning of the downfall of a nation. It says, for the children of Israel walked in all the sins of this man Jeroboam, which he did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away they were deported away from their own land to Assyria as it is to this day. Verse 24, and then the king of Assyria, watch what happens, brought people from Babylon, Kutah, Ava, and Hamath, and from the Sepharvim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. So as we referenced earlier, see, this was their practice. They took the people of Israel out of the land and now they go to other territories that they had conquered, Babylon, Kutah, Avath, the Sepharvim, and they now take those people and they place them into the city of Samaria. They put people from other nations, other lands that they had conquered into Samaria so that you basically have this you kind of you know hodgepodge of different nations all dwelling together in a land that's not even their own home country where they're unfamiliar with the land, they're unfamiliar with the culture. And now this very interesting event begins to unfold. Verse 25, so it was at the beginning of their dwelling there, that is all these other people groups now in Israel and Samaria, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. And again, I don't know if that was anything other than God just trying to demonstrate 
that the land was his, that it wasn't the Assyrians, but there begins to be this outbreak of, of lions beginning to kill the people uh, that God didn't want in the land, but the Assyrians had brought in. So they spoke to the king of Assyria as a result of this, saying, the nations whom you've removed and placed in the cities of Samaria, they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Again, this was their mindset that uh, every land had its own gods and their own rituals. And so, hey, you took the people out of this land. We don't know how to worship the God of this land. So they say, therefore, he sent lions among us. And indeed, they're killing them because they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. So the king of Assyria commanded saying, send there one of the priests whom you brought from there, let him go and dwell there and let him teach the rituals of the God of the land. Very interesting. The king of Assyria says, okay, listen, I don't want to have to deal with this any more than necessary. So he's looking for a quick resolve. He says, look, take one of the priests that we took out of that land, send them back there, let him teach the people the rituals and religious practices of the land, and hopefully this will resolve the problem. Now listen, though that priest may have said some level of understanding, keep in mind, uh, if he was a priest from in the north, he was a corrupt priest. If they wanted a sound priest theologically that knew the ways of God, that knew the word of God, and would lead the people into right fellowship with God, they should have went and got a priest from Jerusalem from where the temple and the one true place of worship was. Instead, they just take one of these priests who was a very corrupt priest during this time. We've seen in our last chapters together that the priests were building foreign altars for whatever king wanted them to bring. We saw that at the close of our chapter last week where the king went to Damascus and he came back and he said, hey, can you build us a new altar? I got the blueprints from this wonderful altar up in Damascus and the priests would just acquiesce and do whatever the king wanted they had no regard for god no fear of god so this priest is going to come but certainly isn't going to be able to give much truth to them verse 28 says then one of the priests whom they had carried away from samaria came and dwelt in bethel and he taught them how they should fear the lord however every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines and the high places in which the Samaritans had made every nation in the cities where they dwelt. The men of Babylon made Sukkoth of Benoth. The men of Kuth, they made Nergal. The men of Hamath made Ashima. And the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartuk. And the Sepharvites, they burned their children in fire to Adremelech and to Anemelech, the gods of the Sepharvium. So every nation basically was just kind of in their own hodgepodge way <laughs> saying, look, well, we're going to do our thing and this is our understanding of truth and this is how we like to worship. And so you have just this pluralism to no you know, limitation where everybody is kind of just doing their own thing. Look at verse 32. So they feared the Lord, strangely enough, language says that, and from every class they appointed for themselves priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. Verse 33, look at this. They feared the Lord yet served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. And to this day they continue practicing the former rituals. They do not fear the Lord nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law and commandment which the Lord had commanded 
the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord made a covenant and charged them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor bow down to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them, but the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt. With great power and outstretched arm, him you shall fear, him you shall worship. The idea is exclusivity here. Him you shall offer sacrifice. So as the priest comes into the land, he teaches them some of the practices, the rituals of worshiping Yahweh God. But obviously there's no true conveying of what the scriptures say in regards to exclusive worship and devotion to God. And he leaves the people open to listen. As long as you have a little bit of this and you incorporate a a little bit of Bible, I mean, as long as you keep a few verses in there, you can build your shrines and altars and mix in in a pluralistic way, hodgepodge religion, everything else you want, just kind of a la carte, build your own worship life, and we'll all just kind of do our own thing here. And so it says here, they, they feared God. They had some sense of, of reverence toward the God of Israel, but yet they served their own gods. So they were afraid of God, the power of God, but they weren't in any way submitted to God. They just continued to do their own thing. And, you know, and I look at this and I think, what a very clear depiction of what a lot of people's modern worship lives are like. It, again, it's, it's what I've said before. It's kind of that salad bar theology thing where everybody goes up to the salad bar with a plate. But that's the only thing that, that's it. You know, that, we all have the same basis. We all go up with a plate. But then everybody just, why well, I like this, but I don't like that. And I like this and that suits my preferences, but mm, that really doesn't go. And so everybody just kind of puts together their own salad bar theological idea of, well, this is what I want God to be like. This is what I want worship to be like. And what does it boil down to? It's self-worship. It's basically determining not this is who God is and I will yield and submit myself to who God is. Instead, it is I will create God in my own image, in my own understanding. As long as God accommodates my lifestyle and my preferences, what I like and don't like. And basically, yeah, I mean, I'll I'll kind of give him some reverence. I'll, I'll have a little bit of God stuff, a little bit of Christianity. But other than that, I kind of want to do my own thing. And I don't want God to be in charge. I just kind of, you know, I do need his help once in a while, but but I want to worship the way I want to worship. And so we want to set aside absolute truth or the standards of God's word as the basis and the authority for all matters of faith and practice. And this is a very, very dangerous, dangerous place for people to go to, but it marks in many ways what we see in our common culture, and yet we wonder why people's lives though seemingly very spiritual, are a mess. Because look, you you can be interested in spiritual things, but yet not be walking in the spirit of God, not be walking in the spirit of truth. Jesus said, I am exclusivity. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this is what God was trying to say to the people here at the end of verse 36 when he says, him you shall fear, him you shall worship, him you shall sacrifice. That is God alone, exclusivity. God deserves exclusive devotion because of who he is. And this, again, caused the deterioration of the people morally and spiritually in Israel in that day. And the statutes, verse 37, and ordinances and law of the commandment which he wrote for you, 
You shall be careful to observe forever, for you shall not fear other gods. And the covenant that I have made with you, you shall not forget, nor shall you fear other gods, but the Lord your God you shall fear. And he will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. However, verse 40, they did not obey, but they followed the former rituals So these nations feared the Lord, yet served their carved images, also their children and their children's children. The idea is generation after generation, this continued. It it just was a practice. It was something that passed from one generation to the next, from the children to the next generation of children. They've continued doing as their fathers did even to this day. What's the issue? A divided heart. They had a divided heart. They did not want to give God exclusive authority over their lives. They didn't want to fully yield to the Lord. And as a result of that, they did not want to honor what the word of God said and submit to God's allegiance. And this continued and continued as a pattern in one generation to the next generation. And the cumulative effect of it ultimately led to the downfall of a nation. It was like chopping a tree down. You know, typically with an axe, you don't chop a big tree down in one swing. You chop and you chop and you chop, and it's the cumulative effect of chop after chop after chop after chop that eventually the tree falls down. And it may not be the last chop that was really the most effective one, but it doesn't matter. It's the cumulative effect of again and again and again and again that ultimately it comes crashing down. And that's what can happen in a nation And that's what can happen in a life if we continue to disregard the voice of the Lord. And look, ultimately, this is why the Bible says again and again that now's the acceptable time. Today's the day of salvation. Now, if you hear his voice, respond. When you hear his voice, respond. That's why Jesus said repeatedly, even to the churches, he was an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church that we need to listen to the voice of the Lord and be responsive. Listen, we may all err and derail once in a while. Sure, we all do that. But you can get back on the track. And that's the important part. We need to get back on the track, and the track's one exclusive way. It's the way of Jesus and submitting to Jesus in each and every one of our lives. Well, why don't we conclude there? We'll end right at the end of the chapter. Let's stand together. Let's pray.